Okay. Now we get into the section uh, in your notes, 1A, the name of the book. The Hebrew title derives from the first word in the book in the Hebrew, which is Vayikra, meaning and he called. So as I pointed out early on, a lot of, in the ancient world, documents were often entitled by their first, by the first word or first phrase in the book. So that's where the Hebrew uh, title comes from. The English is derived from the Vulgate, this is 2B in your notes, which called it Liber, which is the Latin word for book, Leviticus, after the prominent role of the tribe of Levi in the, uh, in the book. This is the tribe that was designated as the priestly tribe. So it describes the sacrifices, the functions of the Levitical priests. 2A is author. Again, the Authors Moses. Now the same problem throughout the Pentateuch is that uh, conservatives believe that Jesus, Paul, uh, Old Testament writers all affirm that Moses wrote the five books of the Pentateuch. Liberals come along and late date everything. Moses couldn't possibly have written this. God couldn't possibly have revealed himself to man. And so they argue for something else. The evidence for Moses as the author is listed. I give you five points there. First of all, Leviticus is part of the law given in Exodus. It is a continuation of the book of Exodus, as it were. As the law in Exodus was given to Moses, so Leviticus must uh, must have been given to Moses, and he wrote it. Uh, Second point, Numbers 1.1. Or excuse me, that's a typo. I should read Leviticus 1.1. Leviticus 1.1 is written as a continuation of Exodus 40 verses 1 and 17. It just picks up where Leviticus, where excuse me, where Exodus ends. Third point, Leviticus 16.1 gives the law of the day of the atonement after the death of Nadab and Abihu, which occurs in Leviticus 10. This indicates that the arrangement of the material in Leviticus is logical and not chronological. See, Leviticus 10 gives us the death of Nadab and Abihu. So you would think that the next thing that would occur in Leviticus 11 is what happens right after that, but it doesn't. And this is typical in some books of the Old Testament. The arrangement is not chronological, but logical. Uh, He's arranging his material according to the purposes for for writing this or the purposes of the law. Fourth thing, vocabulary indicates a wilderness setting. Uh, The worship is... In the tabernacle, if this was written hundred, or if this was written 500 years later or 600 years later, the tabernacle would no longer be in existence. The temple would be in existence. So liberals come along and say, "See, this is probably written about 600 or 700 uh, BC instead of 1400 BC." Well, in that case, it would have talked about the, 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 the temple, not the tabernacle. Lepers were told in the law to go outside the camp. 
indicates they're still camping out in the wilderness, not outside the city. People lived close to the tabernacle uh, in, in, in the, the way Leviticus is written. And the land is mentioned in future terms. So if, if this is written 700 or 800, it would, be, uh, it would have been written as a fraud, basically. And then fifth, the information here, the descriptions, the vocabulary, uh, fit a second millennium B.C. scenario. Now remember, second millennium goes from 1,000 B.C. to 2,000 B.C. So it fits that, that culture, that history, uh, that mode of operation. Furthermore, Leviticus is alluded to or quoted in Ezekiel, indicating that it was written prior to the exile. Now we come to setting, 3A. 3A. The setting, first of all, Leviticus is based on the divine purpose that God chose them to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. So the setting of Leviticus is based on what has just happened. God has redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus 19, 5-6, he says that I have brought you out to be a holy Nation, that is, a nation set apart to my service, and a kingdom of priests. In order to fulfill their role as a priest nation, God provides regulations and rituals to keep them in fellowship with him and to fulfill their role. And by obeying those regulations, they would live in a manner that was distinct from the Gentile nations around them. Under 2b, I give you the context of the Old Testament, we get to fit Leviticus into the overall framework of what's going on in the Old Testament. And that's uh, very important. Always interpret the scripture in light of its historical context. So we studied Genesis 1-11, through that God had created a perfect environment for the human race. Man had disobeyed God in the garden. He had uh, fallen into sin. God provided, uh, God judged him, but provided a perfect solution. Uh, the human race continued to sin against God, bringing the judgment of the flood and then the judgment of, of uh, multiple languages at the Tower of Babel. So God in Genesis 12 calls out one uh, man through whom he will bless the world. Now it is he promises land, seed, and blessing. So what's going to happen here is the seed now has grown because God had promised to Abraham that the seed would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. Now they have grown He's going to take them back and establish them in the land. What do you have to have in order to have a nation? You have to have people. You have to have a law code. And you have to have land. So God's pulling all these together, and he's going to take them back uh, and put them into the land. Exodus 1 through 18 describes the historical events, events of the redemption of the nation from slavery so that they can be his unique people. And then in chapters 19 through 40 of Exodus, God provides regulations for the priesthood and for the construction of his dwelling on earth in the tabernacle. We have the word Shekinah. How many of you have heard the word Shekinah, referring to the Shekinah glory? How many of you all know what Shekinah means? Shekinah is from the Hebrew word Shekinah, which means 
a dwelling place, a dwelling. It is, the Shekinah refers to the dwelling glory of God. So that uh, the word actually gets assimilated into Greek and into Russian and into some other languages. So that when you read John, was it John 1, um, uh, uh, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. The Greek word for dwelt is sakon. Now, shakon, the Hebrew word, is not used in the Old Testament at all. There's no reference. You can read from Genesis to Malachi. You'll never read a a reference to the Shekinah. Because this was a term that was developed by the rabbis between the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe the dwelling of God in the Old Testament that didn't occur anymore. And that word, the Hebrew word Shekinah not only goes into uh, goes into Greek as as uh, skene, Hear the Greek word skene. What are the what are the consonants? S, K, N. But notice how the S H has become an F. Skene. And that's the same word you have in Russian for dwelling is skene. And that derives ultimately from the Hebrew word shakan. Hmm? S-H-A-K-A-N. That's the verb form. Shekinah would refer to just, would be the noun form. So God's going to, in Exodus 19 through 40, you have the regulations for the temple, how to, what the furniture is going to be, what the priests are going to do. You have the uh, consecration of the priesthood, identification of the priesthood, and then Leviticus 1 through 10 defines the regulations and ritual uh, by which the redeemed nation is going to live and how they will approach God. And then in Leviticus 11 through 27, there's a description of Israel's movement toward the promised inheritance. So those are your two broad divisions of the book of Leviticus. So that leads to the principle that Leviticus cannot be separated from its historical setting and the context of the Pentateuch. So when we read it, we have to read it in light of what is going on historically, where the nation is coming out of the land, and that what is described here is for Israel, how they are to live and operate once they get into the land. Leviticus assumes the reality of the Exodus event. This is 3b. It assumes the reality of the Exodus event. Liberal scholars think, and liberal Jewish scholars think, that the whole Exodus thing and the whole sojourn in Egypt was just made up. That this is just legend that was developed to sort of give some kind of justification to their presence and ownership of the land. And they, they deny its historical uh, validity completely. But the Bible doesn't. The Bible recognizes it as truth, which leads to 4b. Leviticus then presupposes the giving of the Mosaic Law from God, that this is not something that they just developed over time because it, it worked, but that God is the one who has given them these, uh, these instructions. It assumes that the people are sinful. This helps us build a biblical worldview. I mean, if you're going to interpret the world, 
Uh, one of the major differences that between the way people look at the world is do you believe that people are basically good or basically evil? Out of that will flow all the issues of life. If you're going to be consistent, it will make a tremendous difference in how you view things. Let me give you one example. Uh, in the 19th century, back into the 18th century, uh, prison and jail was viewed as punishment because when people do wrong things, they need to be punished. But starting in the middle of the 19th century, you're going to appreciate this because you're in law enforcement, uh, in the middle of the 19th century what happened is people began to shift in the worldview in America where the people in power began to assume that people were basically good, not basically evil. So that prison was no longer viewed as punishment. It is now rehabilitation because man is improvable. Well, in some sense he is, but not much. There's a big difference in how you approach society. If you think that people are basically good or basically evil, if you're going to deal in foreign policy with Korea or with Iran and you understand people are basically good, then how is that going to affect your diplomacy? If you think people are basically evil, how is that going to change your diplomacy? And see, this is a problem we have in our modern world, is modern America, modern man, believes that the world is basically good, and that people are basically good. They just need the right motivation, the right encouragement. And that's not a biblical worldview at all. So this, this sets up a culture clash. That's why people talk about the culture wars in America today, why there is such antagonism towards people who approach politics and law, society, all these issues from a Judeo-Christian worldview. Because the world out there doesn't approach it from a Judeo-Christian worldview of man being basically good. And it changes how you view and handle everything. Okay, 5B. Uh, ritual, I mean, religious pagan context. Religious pagan context. It's important to understand that the Jews are going to go into a land uh, uh, taken away from the Canaanites, and all of these cultures surrounding them operate on similar religions. They are not exactly the same, but many of the gods and goddesses are interchangeable. They just change the names depending on the culture. But one of the primary issues was fertility religion. Why, why do you think fertility was important? Why do you think, what? Okay, that's part of it, but you, 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 what else? Why else would you think those these cultures thought fertility was so important? No. You're thinking in terms of human fertility. What else? It's the land. It's the land. They're farmers. It's an agriculture. See, I tell you all are just a bunch of urbanites. <laughs> They're farmers. Their whole, everything in their society depends on for, uh, agricultural fertility. If they don't have rain at the right time, and if they don't have productive crops, they're not going to have a good good economy. They're not going to have food for the for the hard times. It's uh, everything's based on fertility. So they worshipped nature and nature's forces. They deified uh, the forces of nature. So you have among the Canaanites, the worship of Baal. And Baal is the storm god. He is the god of lightning and thunder, the god of rain. Mm -hmm. And his consort is the Asherah. And they 
and if you go back into the pagan myths, it is through the sexual activity, the fertility of the gods and goddesses that brings about creation. And they're all part of creation. You don't have a creator-creature uh, distinction. So these, these forces, people worship fertility. If you can, uh, if you can uh, uh, properly motivate the gods and you live in harmony with the gods, then not only are you going to have a fruitful womb, because we all know that in more primitive societies or before they had modern, a lot of modern medicine, there's high, high infant mortality rates, things of this nature. So you have to placate the gods and goddesses. And you have to motivate them to be, uh, to, to be fertile so that the land can be fertile. So how do you do that? If you've, if you've personified the forces of nature and the land, then the way you motivate them to be fertile is that you go imitate the sex act in the temple. And so you have the whole rise of these fertility religions and why you have these temple prostitutes is because you would, at the beginning of planting season, if I want to ensure that uh, uh, the gods are going to bless me, I need to properly motivate them. And so I go perform the sex sex in the temple and that's going to encourage them to provide fertility for the plant. See it's a very I mean this is just just a perverse thing, but this was this was standard operating procedure. This is why of course God wants to wipe out the Canaanites completely, man, woman, and child, because this pervades everything. So the goal in life is to be fruitful, to be prosperous, to be healthy, and all this is done through motivational, a motivational theology. You see where I'm going with this? This is the ancient version of the modern health and wealth prosperity gospel. And the modern health and wealth gospel brings out preachers who are motivational rather than expositional in their preaching. And and all this ties together. So all this modern health and wealth stuff is just a, a modern sanitized version of the old fertility religion. It's all the same thing. God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. But remember, how do you fit Job into that? All right. Now these religions, and just in summary here, I'll go through the points. The religions identified nature's forces with the gods and goddesses, so they're they're limited. Uh, river, springs, rain, storm, thunder, all this is, is deified. Uh, trees are identified as sacred and indicators of fertility, of prosperity, and health. Thus the Jews were prohibited from worshiping in these sacred groves. They would go up into these groves of trees that were identified with one of the goddesses, and then they would worship the goddess by having sex. Uh, mountains were also considered sacred because they were closer to heaven. And uh, it also, I think, may have something to do with seeking higher ground in terms of, because there's still memory of the flood. God got mad at us. And uh, let, maybe we, we get high enough we can avoid that. So you go to places like in Greece, and you will find the temple set on a high place. And that's called an acropolis. See, we tend to think of the Acropolis as where the Parthenon is in Athens on a high ground in Athens. But every city had an Acropolis. And that's where the temple to the gods and goddesses were, was up on the Acropolis, on the high point, because it's closer to God. 
It's a place also can be a place of refuge. Uh, think about where did the gods, where did the Greek gods live? Mount Olympus. In Canaan, they lived in a mountain up, which is now in Syria now, called Mount Zephon. Uh, Mount Cassia, uh, that was the Canaanite pantheon. In Syria was Mount Cassius, uh, Mount Lebanon, Mount Syrian, Mount Hermon. All these mountains were places where they would put various pagan uh, temples or groves or arts, things of that nature. <coughs> Mount Zion is sacred because it's chosen by God, not by, by man. And this is where the, the Jebusites had originally settled. So when we look at the pagan gods, the various gods are all part of nature, what Aristotle called the chain of being. And I wish I had time to go into all the details related to that. But what you have here is simply a chain of being. Your, your lowest level of being would be you know, plants and amoeba and things like that down here. And then you proceed up the chain of being to animals and then to man, and then to the gods. But they're all inside this same chain of being. They all participate in the same kind of existence. Now, what does this remind you of? Evolution. It was just an early form of evolution that everything goes from amoeba to man. And the gods are just part of the system. They are the forces that produce this within the system. Whereas the Bible says, no, you know, we have a creator God out here that is completely different from everything else. <laughs> and he creates everything and everything is under his, his sovereignty. He's not part of the process. He is apart from the process. And so see if you're inside the if you're inside the process here and you're trying to grow plants here, then you motivate the gods here, but you're still inside the circle of being. Circle of being, circle of life. Mm -hmm. What does that remind you of? Lion the lion king. See how this stuff just leaks out all through culture everywhere? That's right this is this is just they stole everything from the Bible. Yeah, well, that's what they're, they're deteriorating. They're, they're, they're suppressing the existence of God. It's all the servant life. It all comes from within itself. There's no external creator. Uh, don't the Mormons teach a form of Oh, yeah. Yeah, anything, anything, other than, anything other than biblical Christianity is a form of this. You know, it may be more sophisticated. We may use all kinds of uh, scientific terminology now to express these relationships, but it's still the same thing. We, we, we deify nature, the Big Bang. Where do we all go back to? The Big Bang. We're all part of the same matter-time continuum. There's nothing outside of it. Okay, the ritual content. Now, the second, next point I want to go to, that was 5B, just dealing with the, with the uh, religious pagan context. And now the next point, point uh, 6B in your notes, I want to talk about the ritual context. The ritual context of Leviticus. We have to understand 
something called the, the ritual, something we'll call, refer to as being ceremonially clean and ceremonially unclean. And I don't think a lot of people really think, have been taught very clearly on this. So I want to, I want to make sure this is, this is clear. The ritual context, that is bringing your sacrifices and your offerings to God, the, the physical washing of the hands and the feet for the priests, all of these things are part of ritual. Did washing the hands and the feet make you morally clean? No. No. But what does it picture? It pictures becoming spiritually clean. So we have to draw a distinction between, on the one hand, the ritual that is simply a physical picture of a spiritual reality, but they're, they're, totally, they're totally different. Um, but the ritual, the physical ritual, is like a training aid. It's like a visual aid to help people understand what is taking place in the spiritual realm. So, to be hmm? yeah, it's a form of typology. Uh, to be ritually unclean is not the same as being in sin, but it pictures being in sin. For example, if a woman gives birth. She is ritually unclean for a period of days, depending on whether it's a boy or a girl. If you touch a dead body, you become ritually unclean. Now, is that a sin to touch a dead body? No. Is it a sin to give birth? No. no. So those are just some of the examples. You can go through the law and you'll see a lot of these. They're not sins, but what are they associated with? Ah, no, no, no. Let's go back to Genesis 3. The woman is going to have Increased pain in childbirth. Okay, so so the increased pain in childbirth is going to be uh, is associated with the curse of sin. You touch a dead body. What's associated with the curse of sin? Why couldn't you eat certain kinds of of uh, animals or fish? Couldn't eat craw- I mean, lousy guy. No crawfish. No catfish. I don't like them either. You know, you, know, you, you, could, you couldn't, and, and, and no pork. Why? Why would, but why were they unclean? They're scavengers. Scavengers. They're eating dead things. Why do you have dead things? Because of sin. See, you, I, I figured it out on every one of them, but on... Every, almost every one of these things is really clear that it has something to do with the curse of sin. And so what, what God is demonstrating here is how pervasive the curse is. And so whenever you get involved with something t- that's touched by the curse of sin, there has to be a ceremonial cleansing that, that takes place. Okay, And so all of this is designed to do what? To teach that sin separates us from God. And that there has to be real cleansing in order to have a real restoration of fellowship with God. And you can't come into God's presence without cleansing. So ceremonially, you can't come into the, and ritually, you can't come into the presence of God without a sacrifice and without cleansing. And it's interesting that the, um, in, in, in our studies, in our studies of, uh, of words and concepts, we have the word uh, in the in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's a K, sometimes it's a Q, but it's KPR. Uh, usually, 
transliterated kafar, which is the word that is then translated atonement. Kafar is the verb form. Listen to what I say. Yom Kippur. Day of atonement. Yom Kippur. Now when this verb is in the P-A-L stem, which is an intensified stem in the Hebrew, it has the idea of cleansing and in the Septuagint, remember that's translated by Jews, translated Hebrew to Greek, they consistently translate this with the Greek word katharizo, which is what we translate as cleanse. First uh, John one nine. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For years, people have been teaching that kafar primarily means to be covered. So we have the imagery in the uh, on the Day of Atonement where the priest would bring the blood from the unblemished lamb and place it on the, on the mercy seat of the, uh, of the Ark of the Covenant. And, it would, and inside the Ark of the Covenant is what? The broken tablets, the manna, because they were built against God's provision. Amen. And what we'll see later on is that Aaron's rod the buds because they, violate, they were built against God's provision of leadership. So it covers sin. The blood covers sin. But you have, but that's not always in the PL stem. So you have this nuance in the cow, and you have cleansing in, in the PL, which indicates two different things. See, once we're once we're saved, like the high priest, who remember when he gets consecrated, consecrated, what had to happen? Had to be washed from head to toe. Take take a bath, ritual bath, okay. But after that, what does he do? He just has to wash his hands and his feet. Because wherever he goes, he does things that are wrong and goes places that are wrong. That's the picture. So, that's a picture for us that at salvation, we are, our sins are paid, our, our, our full forgiveness is applied. But after salvation, we still sin. We don't lose salvation, but we have to do something to be cleansed experientially for restoration of fellowship with God, which is first uh, John one nine. So, like the word It is. It is purified. Cauterize. Cauterize is a, is a word that where we, we get from that. Very good. So uh, that's that idea of cleansing, purification, um, catharsis, cauterize, all these come from that uh, Greek word, verb, katharizo. <coughs> okay, so the rituals of the Mosaic Law, uh, one other point there, to be ritually clean is not the same as being in fellowship, but it's a picture of being in fellowship. So let's say I'm out with the sheep and I commit sin. <coughs> I have to go run to the temple and offer a sin offering to get back in fellowship with God. Now, I may be up at Dan and it's, you know, a hundred miles down to the temple. I can't do that. But I can confess my sin like David does this in Psalm 51. But the next time I go to the temple, I'm also ceremonially unclean 
and I have to perform the ceremonial sacrifices in order to come into the presence of God ceremonial, ritual. Does that make sense? Okay, the tabernacle, next point, 7b, the tabernacle or temple pictures God dwelling in the midst of his people. Just as God lived in the midst of his people in the Old Testament, today he lives in the midst of every one of us. See, we have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, but not just the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all live inside the believer. So God the Holy Spirit is making our body a what? A temple, which simply means it is a dwelling place for the Godhead. So you see, God is on the earth in um, and, and, and Eden. Then there's, and I believe, and I, we talked about this in Genesis 6, I believe he stayed with the presence on the earth up until the flood. And then he returns his presence to the earth in the midst of his people, Israel. He leaves in Ezekiel before the judgment. The Shekinah departs and goes to heaven. If the presence of God returns with Jesus Christ in the incarnation. And then he takes the presence inside each believer in the church age. So there's a, there's a whole continuum. You can't understand this whole concept of the believer being a temple if you don't understand what? What's going on in the Old Testament. Okay, that provides our, our picture there. Sacrifices, eighth point. Sacrifices were gifts. Uh, viewed as gifts to God. Sacrifices express fellowship with God. And sacrifices picture expiation, that is the payment for sin, cleansing, atonement. All these sacrifices either are pictures of what happens at salvation or they're pictures of what happens in restoration of fellowship after salvation, one or the other. They're either, they either picture salvation like atonement or they picture restoration of fellowship and cleansing uh, like the trespass offering, the sin offering, the, these different different offerings. The theme of, look, this is 4A now. The theme is being set apart to God. The nation needs to be set apart to God. And, the same, and we can learn from this because by way of application, we also have to live a life that is set apart unto God. So we can learn many lessons, even though... In terms of direct interpretation, it doesn't apply to us because we don't go to the temple, we don't perform sacrifices and these other things, but we can learn lessons because they picture for us spiritual truths that are uh, true today. For example, the Mosaic Law presupposes, and this is the fill in the blank, presupposes the redemption of the nation. It presupposes the redemption of the nation. Thus we know that the law wasn't the basis of salvation. God freely redeemed them, and then he gave them the law to show them how to believe. Second line there, the nation Israel is redeemed in the Passover event. That's the fill in the blank. The nation Israel is redeemed in the Passover event, and the law follows. Thus the law, third line, thus the law is related to post-salvation sanctification rather than requirements for salvation. It's related to how the believer lives after, after he realizes redemption, rather than how to be redeemed. 
presupposes the redemption of the nation. Presupposes the redemption of the nation. All right, now let's look at 5A, which is the structure. Uh, structure of the book. First part, the first 16 chapters, this is 1A, God regulates the ritual cleansing necessary to come into his presence. See, they're already saved. This is addressing the nation as a saved as a saved people, not addressing them as a lost people needing to be saved. So most of these have to do with how to come into his presence and how to live as a redeemed people, not how to become redeemed or how to get saved. The um, second, verses 17 to 27, God reveals standards for ritual worship in uh, Israel. Another way to handle this is that Leviticus 1 to 15 deals with the removal of sin and restoration of fellowship with the Holy God in chapter 16 to 26 with ethics, morality, and holiness. So just to, different writers break it up different ways and all I'm giving you is a two or three different ways in which you can uh, organize, uh, organize the book. Okay, let's skip down to 6a. Some key concepts. Key concepts in uh, in Leviticus. First of all, God. God is portrayed as a living God, someone with whom you have a real relationship as opposed to the idolatrous or dead gods of the pagans who give life to crops, fields, and people and have to be motivated. They're very human. To get them to do anything, you have to motivate them. Uh, person, uh, he's a personal God. He has personal names and he formed Israel to be his personal representative on the earth. We learn that God is omnipotent, that he is able to fulfill all that he promises, declares, and foretells, and he is more powerful than the enemies of his people. God is The God of Israel rules over all the nations and all the peoples, and thus the people knew that he could save them from their sins, forgive them, and fulfill his promises to them as a nation. He's righteous. We learn that God's standards are absolute and can't be violated without consequences. And uh, We learn that God is sovereign, that he chose Israel to be a special nation of priests, and that God alone can forgive sins and restore peace. We also learn about get grace, that God doesn't just give them what his expectations are, but he provides the way to meet his expectations, and he provides a basis for forgiveness when there is uh, failure. We also learn that God is a jealous God. Second thing we learn about that's a theme in uh, Leviticus is holiness. Holiness. And the... I'm trying to figure out where this particular slide goes, not to the next section. Okay, we have already covered this. The Hebrew word for holy is kadash, right here. The holy word, the Hebrew word for holy is kadash, Q-A-D-A-S-H. It occurs more than 150 times in the book. We've already talked about this to some degree. It means to be separate or to be set apart for the use of God. It is an intrinsic characteristic of God related to his justice, his righteousness, and his veracity or his truth. The righteousness is the standard by which God operates. Justice is the operation or the application of that standard to his people and truth or veracity controls uh, how he does that so that we can say God is a uh, God of integrity. 
Uh, there's a song, I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head, that says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, and truth, uh, truth goes forth, mercy and truth go forth from it. So it is, it's holiness is a foundation for all that, he, all that he does. Holiness is related to the doctrine, this is uh, number four, holiness is related to the doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification are being set apart unto God. What, how, how do we live as the people of God who have been redeemed by God in a manner that is consistent and reflective of God's integrity? Okay, let's just skip down to the next section, atonement. Atonement means at one moment which addresses man's need for reconciliation with God due to sin. Okay. See, it comes out of an old English word that just means at one minute, and it has this idea of reconciliation. I'm not sure it's the best word that we should use to translate this. The word never occurs in the New Testament. And just this idea of what happens on the Day of Atonement as, as a nation reaffirms its reconciliation with God by the ritual of, of the, putting the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. I point out in the second point, what we've already discussed, is that there's a debate over the meaning. Uh, to cover has been the traditional understanding. Uh, to wipe, to cleanse, to purge is probably the root meaning, and it has this idea in the intensified stem of cleansing. So both of these ideas are present. The other thing we picture here, and I forgot to bring it in today, and I normally do. Uh, usually I use it in Exodus. I got a little stuffed lamb in the car. And I like to use that as a visual image. So just use your imagination that I've got my little stuffed lamb in my hand. And when you come into the temple, you put your hand on the lamb. And what is that picture? The picture is identification. And that this lamb is identified with my sin. And this lamb is going to have his throat slit. And, ju- and, the, and just have that arterial spray of blood everywhere. In my place. See, that's that picture of substitution. That Christ died for me. And, that, and, and, and last year when we were in Israel, we watched a, a film at one of the places where we went where we see they're portraying what would go on in the temple and the person coming to the temple. And he's carrying this lamb. I mean, this lamb is just like, like a little puppy, you know, just innocent and just got those big eyes and just looks so sweet and wonderful. And yet what happens is that, that your sin is identified with that lamb and they're going to cut its throat and that blood's just going to go wherever. The altar was a bloody stench. Think of the flies. What is this picturing? It's picturing the horribleness of sin and the awfulness of what has to happen to pay for our sin. Let's not anesthetize this and and clean it up and make it uh, palatable for us. This was horrible. And you just take this, this doe-eyed little lamb and slit its throat because you sinned. But that's nothing compared to the perfect, innocent Jesus. 
who went to the cross and went through all that for us. And that's that's the picture. His sub- atonement is substitutionary. Jesus died in our place. Fifth point, we have holy days. The, the, the calendar of Israel talks about the Sabbath day, which pictures in the New Testament our spiritual rest in Christ. Our Passover is a picture of our redemption in Christ. Four beads, that's substitutionary or vicarious uh, sacrifice was four beads. Did I have a fill in the blank there? Yes. I did. Oh, it's not. I don't have a note there. Substitutionary or vicarious. That's what that word vicarious means is substitute. Okay. Mm-hmm. Propitiation means satisfaction. Satisfaction. The character of God is satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross. Uh, holy days. We have Sabbath is the pictures of spiritual rest in Christ. Passover is pictures our redemption in Christ. The Feast of Unleavened Bread came right after Passover. That pictures a resurrection. That was uh, uh, a resurrection of Christ. The Feast of Weeks represents the descent of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Feast of Trumpets, the gathering of redeemed Israel. The Day of Atonement pictures the removal of sin from the nation. And the Feast of Tabernacles pictures God's dwelling with man in the kingdom. The first four were all spring festivals, and they were all fulfilled on the very day that they occurred at the time of Christ. The last three, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, picture the application of this to the nation Israel when Christ returns the second coming. Those are fall festivals, and they, and they have not been fulfilled yet. But since the other four were fulfilled on the very day, or the, at least the other three, the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the um, Feast of First Fruits, I left First Fruits out. It's not fe- Let's make a correction there. I've got a typo there. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a picture of the person of Christ. Not resurrection. Not resurrection. The person of Christ? Yeah. Feast of Unleavened Bread pictures the person of Christ because leaven pictures sin. And unleavened bread is the sinlessness. The Feast of Unleavened Bread began at the same time as Pentecost. What I left out here, which you should put between the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Feast of Weeks, is the Feast of uh, First Fruits. Feast of First Fruits. And the Feast of First Fruits pictures the resurrection of Christ. Yes. So your spring festivals are the Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and the Feast of Weeks are Pentecost. Okay, Passover is the redemption of Christ. Feast of unleavened bread is the person of Christ. Feast of first fruits is the resurrection of Christ. And the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, that's the other name for it, represents the descent of the Spirit. 
See, if the Jews had accepted Christ as their Savior, then what would have happened on the day of Pentecost is the Spirit would have descended on Israel and fulfilled and in establishing the new covenant. But it didn't happen because Israel had rejected Christ as Messiah, so what happens is something new was established, which was the church. So there's five spring festivals, right? Well, Sabbath isn't a spring festival. The Sabbath is just the, the Sabbath day. That's every week. Okay. So you have Passover. the spring festivals are Passover, one, two, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, three, the Feast of First Fruits, and four, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Okay. Then you have three fall festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, now, 6b, the law. Background. We've already talked about this some. How do we in the New Testament church understand and apply the law? The main thing I'm pointing out here is the law was good. Paul says the law was good and holy and righteous. It's not wrong. It's not evil. Sometimes we look at it through the grid of what the Pharisees did to it and we think all that legalism was bad. But see, Paul says the law was holy and righteous is good. What the Pharisees did with it wasn't. Also that the law was given for believers and unbelievers in the nation. I mean, everybody's responsible for the law, at least the civil and criminal part. And the law doesn't provide a salvation. We've gone over all of this already, just a summary there. And then on the seventh point, I give you the key terms in Leviticus. Uh, sacrifice is used 42 times, priest 189 times, blood is mentioned 86 times, holy is mentioned 87 times, atonement is mentioned 45 times, and sin is mentioned 80 times. Okay. You have a typo there? I'm an E. With an E? <laughs> sign, no, it's sin. That's all right. Yeah. So we know the definitions of each one. Uh, of, of each of those? Uh, no. I'm just, I'm just mentioning those as key terms. It shows you where the emphasis in the book is. Yeah. How many times these are used. Okay, now, we're going to cover the next three or four pages fairly quickly because this will just help you think through the book. This is the outline for the book of, of uh, Leviticus. First of all, the first major division is 1A. God regulates the ritual cleansing necessary to recover and maintain fellowship with Him. These are the first 16 chapters. 2A, which comes at the bottom of the next page, I believe, God required the Israelites maintain the conduct of set-apart people, and that's chapters 17 to 27. Those are your two divisions in the book. The first part, God regulates. He gives the regulations for cleansing. The second part, he gives the requirements uh, to maintain fellowship. Okay? Under the first part, we have 1B, God regulates the sacrifices. And you should look at the chart in your book by Walton on Old Testament charts. He has a very good chart there outlining the different uh, sacrifices. There are three. uh, The first three are sweet savor offerings. You have a fill in the blank there? Yeah. I filled it in already, okay. 
The first three are sweet savor offerings. These are the burnt offering, the meal or grain offering, and the peace or fellowship offering. You need to be able to identify these. I may ask you list uh, two or three of the five uh, offerings in Leviticus. So you have the, the, uh, the burnt offering, the meal or grain offering, the peace or fellowship offering. The next two are non-sweet savor offerings, which picture fellowship and cleansing. These are the sin offerings. When you, when you commit some sin, then you have the sin offerings and the trespass or guilt offerings. This is for restoration of fellowship. The initial, the uh, burnt offering, the meal or grain offering, peace or fellowship offerings, uh, picture or picture salvation. Now, this is just as a side note. Uh, I don't know if you've studied this before, but in the future there will be a millennial temple, right? Right. Ezekiel 30, uh, 36, and 30. No, Ezekiel uh, 40 and following gives you various sacrifices that are going to be performed in the Millennial Kingdom. A lot of people come along and say, why are there sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom? I mean, Jesus has already died. Well, what's interesting is the sacrifices that are listed for the Millennial Temple do not include the sacrifices that picture salvation. They are the sacrifices that picture restoration of fellowship. Now, why would there have to be sacrifices for restoration of fellowship in the Millennial Kingdom? Remember, it's ritual. It's not, it's not for, their, it's for the ritual life. That's why it's important to distinguish those things. Because the, um, the Zadokite priesthood that functions in the Millennial Kingdom, just like everybody else that's born in the Millennial Kingdom, has a what? Has a sin nature. And they're going to sin. So they have to, before they can serve in the temple and come into the presence of God... What has to happen? There has to be ceremonial cleansing. And so that's why there's a restoration of sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom is for restoration of fellowship and ceremonial cleansing to come into the presence of God. They're not salvation-oriented. They're not memorial. Some people think they're memorial sacrifices. I don't agree with that. I think it has to do with the... because they're not related to salvation. So we have five, five offerings at the beginning of Leviticus, burnt offering, meal offering, peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering. Sin offering, trespass offering, picture, restoration of fellowship. Then in chapter 6, God begins to instruct the priest concerning the offerings in chapter 6 and chapter 7. There the section focuses on the administrative details of the sacrifices, how, you're going, how they are actually uh, implemented. Then the next section of the opening part of Leviticus, uh, you have the institution and regulation for the Aaronic priesthood. The, the chapter 8 describes the setting apart of Aaron and his sons and the sanctuary, their initial consecration. What's the root, the, what do you think the Hebrew root word for consecration is? What does consecration mean in English? To set apart. So what do you think the Hebrew word is in a relation? Kadash. It's holy. It's sanctified. It's to be set apart. So they're, they're sanctifying the priesthood. See, when you got saved, 
you were positionally set apart in Christ. Mm. Now you still sin. Mm-hmm. And we are to learn to live experientially set apart to Christ, but positionally we're already set apart to Christ. The regulations for the Levitical priesthood are then given in chapter 9, but there's a challenge that's made because two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, uh, come in and they try to bring uh, incense, strange fire before the Lord. This is not authorized. It's not there. They don't. They're, they're not set up to do this, and they want to worship God on their own terms. See, this is what often happens down through history. Is people think that they get to determine what the basic, what worship is. Scripture tells us what worship is, but modern man wants to come along. This infects our churches today. We want to define what worship is. Worship is defined by how I feel about God. See, I can go to church and feel lousy and and sing hymns and not feel good and I've worshipped God. Because worship has to do with my mental attitude of being obedient to Him. It has nothing to do with how I feel. See, I can feel pretty lousy. I can wake up with a cold. I can wake up hungover. I can wake up tired. I can wake up guilty over the sin in my life and remorseful. And I go to church and the pastor preaches on something that ha- that the Holy Spirit uses to convict me. And I feel bad. Real bad. Right? Right. Modern man says, oh, you want to come to church and get feel good? And go home feeling uplifted, happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. But that's not what Scripture says. Biblical worship is defined by God and not by man, not by how we feel. And some of you are older. Some of you are in your 40s and 50s maybe. You can remember what church was like 50 years ago. What church was like 100 years ago is what it was like 50 years ago. What it was like 150 years ago is pretty much what it was like 50 years ago. See, as our culture has become more and more postmodern and self-centered, worship and singing and hymns have become more self-centered and, and, and more subjective. And it's not worship anymore. We're defining worship on the basis of what makes me feel like I've worshipped God. I've heard so many people who say, I feel like I worship God this morning. I don't think so. That's not the criteria. I don't think it made him feel good to slit that lamb's throat. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. Where were we? So God, Nadab and Abihu want to come along and define how they're going to worship God, and God takes their life. He doesn't give them a second chance. Then slap their wrist. Okay, third division, chapters 11 through 15. Uh, God mandates ritual purity. And here's where we have all the different laws related to uh, how you can become ritually unclean uh, through contact with certain animals in chapter 11. Uh, ritual impurity due to childbirth in chapter 12. Ritual impurity due to skin diseases and mildew in chapters 13 through 14. Uh, Chapter 15, ritual impurity due to various uh, bodily discharges related to reproduction again. So, again, I emphasize that ritual impurity or uncleanness wasn't identical to sin, 
but it indicated that sin separates man from God. Ritual purification or cleansing pictures the need for sin to be dealt with before man can have fellowship with God. Mm-hmm. Fourth division, chapter 16, deals with the regulations for the Day of Atonement. And I've talked about, uh, we've already talked about atonement and covering. Um, God warned Aaron not to enter the holy place in chapter, in the first two verses. He provided instructions for the high priest's entry into the holy place in verses 3 through 5. Described the ritual cleansing for Aaron in preparation for entering in in verses 6 through 10. And then he gave detailed instructions from 11 to 28. Notice the proportion here. Up to this point, we've covered ten verses. He warns Aaron, he gives him instruction, describes the ritual cleansing, but the instructions for the ritual cover 18 verses. And then he institutes the Day of Atonement. God institutes the Day of Atonement as an annual uh, ritual. That's the first 15 chapters. Then we come to chapters 17 through 27, emphasizing uh, God's requirement that the Israelites maintain the conduct of a set-apart people. Here he is going to end up telling them that there will be five series or cycles of, uh, of discipline, five stages of discipline that he will take them through if they refuse to maintain their set-apart status. In other words, if they go into sin and idolatry, God says, first of all, this will happen. Then if you continue, this will happen. Then if you continue, I'll intensify it even more and this will happen. So these are five stages of discipline. And the fifth stage is you'll be conquered by a, by a foreign power and I will take you out of the land. Which, which is what happened. So let's just kind of summarize this quickly. The standards for a set-apart life are set up and revealed in chapters 17 through 20. They have a distinct diet. They have a distinct marriage. Uh, They're set apart in the way they handle their marriage relationships. They're set apart in the relationship with God and man. And a set-apart status means that they punish lawbreakers, including capital punishment. If you had a rebellious child, what were you supposed to do? Kill them. Take them out in the the public square and stone them. Why? Why? Why do you think God has that? Does that sound harsh to you? Yeah. No, that's because that's because you're pagan. That's you. You're just a bunch of uh, you're just a bunch of pagans. So you've been influenced by our culture to identify that as harsh. See, if that's what God wanted, it can't be by definition harsh, can it? It means your value system's wrong, not God's. What's He doing? Remember, we talked about. Divine institutions, didn't we? These are social institutions that must be followed, or what happens? Society falls apart. What are the first of all individual responsibilities? If these teenagers are growing up and acting irresponsibly, what's that going to do to the next generation? It's going to deteriorate. What's it going to do to to the institution of marriage? What's it going to do to the institution of family? What's it going to do to the nation? In other words, this is like cutting cancer out. It's preventative maintenance so that their their rebelliousness 
Their lack of respect for authority. See, at the core of everything is respect for authority, right? Right? What was Satan's sin? Lack of respect for authority. So if you don't have authority orientation, what's going to happen? Everything's going to fragment. So God says you've got to nip it in the bud. If you, and it takes, it, it is the, the, the consequences of producing a generation of rebellious children is so horrendous that it necessitates harsh, punitive action. See how so. Su- what? Doesn't matter. There's still harsh punitive action. Who the Lord loves, He what? He disciplines and whips alive every son who He receives. See, see the, the, the law. The law gives us the law gives us God's standard, and and what, that doesn't mean that, of course, that we apply that in a, exactly the same way. But it ought to tell us something that there is something serious. Involved here in terms of parental responsibility in teaching obedience and respect for authority. And if it's not there, what's going to happen? See, there's a great application there. The same thing with the death penalty. Tremendous application there. And the death penalty is clearly reaffirmed in the New Testament. The reason you don't get these laws reaffirmed in the New Testament is because we're not a Christian nation. See, these are, this is a law code for a nation, but there's no Christian nation today. So nations in the church age can go to the Mosaic Law and say, okay, if God were to set up a constitution, how would he do it? Let's pattern what we do after what he did. doesn't mean it has to be one for one the same, but it's patterned after because we have God's uh, perfect, what did Paul call the law? Righteous and perfect and holy. Don't you mean we do have a Christian nation? No, we don't. No, No, because we're not a theocracy. See, God is the ruler of Israel. But you you know why you can't have a Christian nation? Because you can't have a non-Christian nation. Because nations don't go to heaven or go to hell. People do. Okay, so it's not... What we mean by a Christian nation is a nation that was founded on principles related to a Judeo-Christian revelation. Okay? But it is not a... It never has been a, quote, Christian nation in the sense that it was it was purely a, uh, a homogenous Christian... It was pretty close. But it wasn't perfect. But it was found... There were a lot of other influences besides uh, Judeo-Christianity, but that was really the, the framework. Okay, let me go on because I want to cover one thing important before we finish. In chapter 22, 1 and 22, we have the standards for a set-apart priesthood, gifts, and sacrifices given. Uh, 3b, God sets apart the Sabbath, and we have the description of the annual feasts. In chapter 23, the Sabbath, the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Pentecost, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, 4b, God regulates the setting apart of the furniture of the tabernacle. The furniture had to be sanctified, had to be consecrated through certain rituals set apart to God. Uh, God does, uh, 5b, uh, God designates the punishment of a blasphemer in 24.10 through 23. And point number or 6b, uh, God sets apart the possession of the land in the sabbatical in jubilee years. A sabbatical year was what? 
Every seven years. Just like on the Sabbath, every seventh day you didn't work. Every sabbatical year you didn't work. What was that a picture of? You're trusting God to provide for you. You're resting in God's provision. He's going to provide for you. For every seventh year you don't work. It's wrong to work. See, they didn't. That's why they're taken out of the land. Because they didn't rest. They didn't follow that. So the seventh year, listen to me. The seventh year. What's the next one? The fourteenth year. When's the next one? Twenty-first year. When's the next one? Twenty-eight. When's the next one? Thirty-five. When's the next one? Forty-two. When's the next one? Forty-nine. And then what happens on the fiftieth year? It's the Jubilee year. Let's put some neon lights on this. The Jubilee year occurs every 50th year. And then everything reverts back to its original. If you're in debt, goes back, debts are canceled. If you, if you have become an indentured servant, which is really their idea of slavery. Uh, if you were an indentured servant, uh, you became free. Remember, God... Now, listen very carefully to what I say. God is a holy God. Major premise. Minor premise. A holy God authorizes slavery. Conclusion. Slavery is not inconsistent with the holiness of God. It's the kind of slavery. It's how it was practiced. God doesn't regulate what is... God doesn't regulate sin. Understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. God prohibits sin. Okay? So if slavery as an institution is inherently and always wrong, God would have prohibited it. But what God did was he regulated it because he realized that for some people they needed that to provide financial security. But there was always an out. It wasn't a slavery based on race. It wasn't a slavery. It wasn't a chattel slavery. It was a slavery where there was payment. There was a slavery that provided redemption, and that no matter what else happened at the end of fifty years, you're free. Okay. See, that's the difference. There's grace. There's recognition there that people are people, and sometimes you just get. You get overloaded in debt and everything else, and you just have to put yourself in a position to recover security. But it was also up to the individual's volition. And if you wanted to stay in that status of slavery, what happened? They pierced the earlobe with an awl. So that it was a sign that I may be a slave, but I'm here of my own volition. What's that? first divine institution. You could be a slave unless you put yourself there. That's the difference between what is what 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 took place in pagan cultures, which enslaved people after conquest, enslaved people in various other means for life and maltreated them and mistreated them. In the biblical in, in the Mosaic law view of slavery Slavery was a way to provide security and so that a person could recover financial independence. It was a safety valve for those who had failed 
and now they can they have a way out so that they can recover from that and eventually be restored to freedom. And it's it's not unlike what we see a lot today. Kids grow up, they leave home, and then ten years later, knock knock knock. Mama, I want to come back home and live at home. I got to pay off all my credit card debts, and I need to save some money, and uh, so that I can give it a second shot. Uh, it's, it's very similar to that. But I think it's important. The principle is God doesn't regulate that which is inherently wrong. God doesn't. God, and what else did God regulate in the Mosaic Law? He regulated divorce. Think about that. If, if, if divorce is inherently wrong. God would have prohibited it across the board rather than providing regulations. God doesn't, doesn't regulate sin. He prohibits it. So if he's regulating it, it's showing that, that under if it's done the way he says to do it, it's not inherently wrong. It's only wrong if it's practiced wrong. Okay, so think about that. Those are some heavy thoughts. Um, God's, you have the sabbatical year and the jubilee year. The jubilee year is when? Every 50th year. Then in chapter 26, God itemizes blessings for contractual fidelity. In other words, if they're faithful to the covenant, God says, I'm going to do these things for you. I'm going to bless you. Um, and... He says, Israel is not to violate the law through idolatry or Sabbath violation. And he itemizes blessing. Blessing is going to include, if you read chapter 33, I'm chapter 26, it's great. And he says, if you, if you do what I say, you'll be prosperous. There will be plenty of, plenty of uh, agricultural prosperity, military peace. People won't even invade. And, and, and five people in your army will give flight to 5,000 in the invader's army. Why? Because it's, it's not just about technology and military and skills. There's a spiritual reality. Then, and this is what you need to understand, 3C, God itemizes five stages of discipline if they're unfaithful. First stage includes loss of physical health, disease, military defeat, national insecurity. Second stage, there's drought, famine, economic collapse, inflation. There's drought. That means there's no rain. Later on, when you get into 1 Kings 17, what is what is uh, Elijah doing? He prays for no rain. Why? He's enforcing the, he's enforcing the covenant. Remember what I said? A prophet is one who represents God and enforces a covenant. He's not just one who foretells the future. See, Elijah isn't just foretelling the future that it isn't going to rain. He's enforcing the covenant disciplinary stipulations of the law code. You're in violation, and so there's not going to be any rain. When he prays to God for no rain, he's going to God on the basis of the contract. It's all legal. Third stage, increased loss of health, more threat from wild animals. What happens in our country? Isn't it amazing that in America you don't have, a, you don't have lions and tigers and a lot of predatory animals. Uh, we used to have malaria and, and yellow fever, things like that, but that pretty much disappeared. We, God's blessed us in a lot of ways. And, and we've also seen the removal of a, a lot of predatory animals that were here. But what do the pagan environmentalists want to do? They're reintroducing bears, 
Like in Connecticut, I had a neighbor who walked outside one day, and there's a bear on top of his rabbit hutch. They're reintroducing uh, wolves into uh, areas where there's a sheep farming, sheep ranching, sheep farming, cattle ranching up in Montana. See, they're, they're doing just the opposite of what God says. God says, if, if, if you obey me, I'm going to remove these animals. Mm-hmm. Modern man environmentalist says the removal of the animals shows that man has taken over their ecosystem. How bad and evil we are. It's all paganism. Fourth cycle, invasion of foreign powers, disease, plague, defeat from enemies, economic collapse, and then finally fifth cycle, military invasion, siege, cannibalism for survival. All this happened. People are going to be removed from the land. But in chapter 26, verses 40 to 45, God promises a future restoration to the land and the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. That's the important thing. God says, I will take you out of the land. He's promises. It's foretold. You will get to this point, and I will take you out of the land. But, grace, I will eventually restore you from all the earth. That hasn't happened yet. I believe that it's happening now, but it hasn't happened fully yet. And this isn't, and uh, so we have to look at, at those passages. So, and then at the very end, the last chapter, there are regulations of vows and the redemption of tithes. And we'll talk about tithes more when we get into Deuteronomy. Okay? Went five minutes extra, but I uh, appreciate your staying. And uh, see you all next week. Any questions? If anybody has any questions, you can, uh, you can ask me now.